Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, everybody, I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On this month's show, we're discussing coronavirus and housing in Baltimore and beyond. We'll discuss the ways that COVID-19 has exacerbated an already existing affordable housing crisis and hear about how people who are pushing back against evictions during a time of economic downturn are faring. Later in the show, we'll talk to two local housing activists and hear about why accessing COVID-19 stimulus relief has been a struggle for some immigrants in Baltimore. We'll then talk to a housing reporter about what this looks like nationally, talk about the politics of the federal response, and hear about innovative ways that nonprofit developers are funding affordable housing. But first, I'm joined by Matt Hill. Matt Hill is an attorney and team leader of the Human Right to Housing Project at the Public Justice Center right here in Baltimore City. Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on Future City. Thank you for having me. So can you first give us a sense of just how seriously COVID-19 is affecting people's housing here in Baltimore? And how did that differ from what we saw before COVID-19? Basically, the, the, the bottom is falling out for so many people who are already um, on the edge of eviction and housing instability. The latest numbers that I saw showed that there are in the state of Maryland, 214,000 families at imminent risk of eviction. There's a rent shortfall projected by January to be $560 million just um, in the state of Maryland. And it's just, I see it in, in my clients. I see clients who, you know, were scraping by to begin with, who, you know, maybe they got the $600 a week supplement when unemployment uh, benefits were providing it, but that ran out. They've run out of savings. Um, they can't find another job. And they are doing everything possible to scrape and to find whether public help they can. And it's just not providing enough to, uh, to get by. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, just tons of people um, calling us all the time. Uh, facing some sort of eviction action um, or threats of an illegal eviction action from their landlords. And so it's it's a major, major concern. And I think if we don't do something fast, we're going to be looking at a significant increase in homelessness and all of the, the, the detriments to family health and education and employment that go with homelessness. You know, while, while COVID-19 and the numbers we're talking about, while these numbers are new, the affordable housing crisis that we faced in the city and the region is not. What was the state of affordable housing here in Baltimore and in the region before COVID-19? Sure. Um, I think particularly for renters, um, we're already facing an affordable housing crisis. Um, you know, 6,500 tenants, families would be evicted or were evicted each year uh, in Baltimore City even before COVID-19. And that's in part because of the lack of quality, affordable housing. So housing that people who are, you know, making seven, eight, even 
and $15 an hour can afford for their family um, in a good neighborhood that has quality schools, that doesn't have, you know, leaks uh, coming through the roof. Um, it doesn't it actually has heat in the winter. Um, this was a this was a major crisis, and again, it resulted 6,500, 7,000 families every year uh, experiencing eviction even before COVID-19. And now, what again? I, there's lots of different forms of data out there, but even from the um, the Maryland Multi Housing Association, the the uh, which is the apartment association's um, sort of industry group, they're saying that delinquencies are double, if not triple. Um, what they were prior to the pandemic. Um, and so we're looking at the very steep affordability crisis and a housing crisis, housing conditions crisis that's only gotten worse. So, and we've seen certain types of initiatives that have been put into place to include things like uh, eviction moratoriums. I know even uh, in full transparency, even our organization very early, uh, you know, advocated for eviction moratoriums uh, early into, into COVID-19. But but how effective has that been? And, and what is the actual status right now uh, for the state and the federal eviction moratoriums as we as it sits currently? Yeah, this is a really important point because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, the eviction moratorium in Maryland ended on July 25th. So there is no eviction moratorium in Maryland right now. Right. Um, what we have left are very limited defenses, uh, one from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, um, and one from the governor that provides certain tenants under certain circumstances who follow certain procedures uh, in certain types of evictions, it doesn't cover all evictions, um, with uh, defense to, to the eviction action um, for the moment. Doesn't mean they don't owe the rent, but there's kind of a pause on the eviction moving forward at the moment. But um, again, it doesn't cover everyone. And most folks don't even know that these um, protections exist. And so we see a lot, a real problem with education and outreach around these, these defenses. And then again, because they don't cover everyone, we continue to see people being evicted. Um, in the month of September alone, there were uh, 214 families evicted just in Baltimore City. Um, and so we're, what we're seeing is major gaps and a real lack of, of, of an effective, efficient sort of program to help people avoid eviction. And I think one thing you bring up an important point, too, because I think one of the other things that has been highlighted in all this is what kind of rights do renters actually have in the first place? Because that's something that has actually been both both exposed and challenged in this moment. So can you give us an overview of what kind of rights renters actually have during this during this period and how that has been challenged? Sure. So uh, the most important right I think to start with is just that there there's no right to self-help eviction in Maryland. So a landlord has to go through a court process. They have to get a judgment. They have to get a warrant. They have to execute that warrant through the sheriff. We're getting lots of calls from folks saying, you know, my landlord told me to be out by five o'clock uh, tomorrow or they're just going to lock me out and throw me out. Um, and so the first thing to remember is, A, if that's happening, call 911. Um, normally, we don't always advise folks to call the police, but if there's going to be a physical altercation, um, you need to protect yourself and call 911 to try to prevent the landlord from trying to physically remove you. Should you be illegally evicted, you can go to the district court commissioner and file charges. It's a criminal action in Baltimore City in particular 
to um, self-help evict um, a tenant. And so that's the most important thing. Secondly, um, you know, tenants do have rights, again, under the CDC order, under the governor's order, um, to be able to avoid eviction under certain circumstances. Um, again, this gets really complicated, but there are legal services available to help you navigate those complications. And um, I'm happy to provide details about those, those organizations, but organizations like our own Public Justice Center, Maryland Legal Aid, the Homeless Persons Representation Project, uh, the Pro Bono Resource Center, um, we're all really stepping up as much as possible to increase our resources so that we can help people navigate what are very difficult um, and, and limited defenses that are available. And then I think it's important to remember, too, that in certain jurisdictions, there are certain prohibitions against um, late fees and rent increases. And it's uh, important to know what those are, where they apply, and how they might apply to, to you. Um, so that's, those are some of the basics. There's a, there's another thing though that that you actually did not mention, and that's the and that is right to counsel, you know. And you do have other cities, uh, Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco, where there is measures of right to counsel um, that uh, that you know specifically for the cases of of an eviction cases, um, but that's not the case here. Uh, but it is something that is being debated and discussed. What do you think? Uh, of that legislation that is being debated and discussed right now, currently in Baltimore City, and how much of a difference can the right to counsel have in these kind of cases? The, the, the complexity of some of these defenses that tenants have um, really highlights the need during a pandemic for people to fully know and assert their rights. And it's unfortunate, but it's, it's true that lawyers do make a major difference in these eviction cases. And so we do believe um, and we're working hard to ensure that everyone has a right to an attorney when they're facing some sort of eviction action. Um, as you said, you know, this is a, this is the law in places like New York City. They're working to implement a right to counsel law. Philadelphia passed a right to counsel law, uh, San Francisco, a number of other jurisdictions. And there's a bill right now uh, in Baltimore City Council that has a hearing on November 10th at three o'clock that would provide for a right to counsel in eviction cases um, in the city. Um, so we, we strongly urge folks to call their counsel people, tell them that they support the right to counsel and evictions bill. Um, people shouldn't face evictions alone. You know, 96% of landlords, according to one study, have some form of representation in eviction cases. Right now, only 1% of tenants have representation in these eviction cases. Another study said, you know, 80% of tenants have some sort of defense to the eviction. Maybe it's an illegal fee. Maybe it's the condition of the property. Maybe it's the landlord's not licensed. Um, but only 8% um, of those tenants were able to successfully assert their rights without counsel. And so landlords have this sort of inside advantage uh, in the system. And so we think it's really important to level the playing field and pass a right to counsel, both at the Baltimore city level and we're gonna work for this on the state level too, uh, because these are issues are not specific to Baltimore City. These are some things we see around, um, around the state and around the country. Um, so that's one piece of things that we wanna see. Uh, a couple other really critical priorities are reinstituting an eviction moratorium. There's absolutely no need to have people uh, being evicted uh, during the middle of a pandemic. So we need to pump the brakes on, on evictions um, we need to get people the rental assistance they need. So the governor allocated $30 million 
to rental assistance, uh, primarily from federal CARES Act money. That's only $140 per family that's right now facing um, an eviction. That's nothing. Um, other states like Pennsylvania allocating $175 million. And so we need the governor and the General Assembly to come back in January and provide, provide a real meaningful allocation uh, to, it, we will call it cancel the rent, if you want to call it rental assistance, but landlords and tenants need government assistance right now to avoid that homeless crisis. And then we need to take the opportunity to change how evictions happen in Maryland. It's incredibly easy for landlords and cheap for landlords to file an eviction action. Tenants have not as many rights as they do in many other um, sorts of uh, court cases. And so we need to change the eviction process to make it much fairer so tenants get a fair chance to assert their rights. There is also racial disparities that do exist when having these conversations. How specifically are black renters uh, in particular affected by the COVID-19 crisis? So we know that the, the black and brown folks have borne the brunt of the COVID-19 crisis, right? Um, in terms of being more, more likely to be our essential workers um, who are then more likely to be at risk of infection and are being infected at much higher rates um, compared to, to white persons. Um, we know that with respect to the housing crisis, we see this in, in the numbers in terms of who's affected, right? Who, in, a, in one survey that uh, measured who's gonna have a difficult or no chance at paying the rent next month, 60% uh, of black and brown respondents said that they were not uh, going to be able to pay the rent or were not sure if they were gonna be able to pay the rent next month. That's 60% of all black and brown renting households in Maryland. Um, by contrast, 33% of white uh, renting households in Maryland said that they had no confidence or little confidence that they could pay uh, the rent next month. Black renters and brown renters are affected almost double the rate of white renters uh, by the COVID-19 um, housing crisis. What are the things or are there things that you're seeing on the grassroots level that are giving you hope about ways we can actually use this moment to address the disparities uh, that are existing between, you know, that the, the we've seen before, but that this crisis continues to exacerbate? Yeah, I think that's a critical point. I mean, we, we know what the policy solutions are here, but without a real grassroots movement to um, essentially force politicians to come to the table with, with, with the political will to make it happen, it's not going to happen. Um, and so we've, we've seen examples of this in Baltimore City where there is an outcry, where calls are made, emails are sent, and marches happen, and then we get the real solutions that we need and that's what we need to happen again here, both in the city to pass things like the right to counsel bill. And then we need at the state level, people to really speak out, um, call their delegates, call their senators and say, look, you need to prevent evictions. Here's how you do it. Reinstitute an eviction moratorium, fundamentally change the eviction process, rental assistance, provide a right to counsel. And until people get together in mass and make their voices heard, this is not going to change. I've been speaking with Matt Hill, uh, an attorney and team leader of the Human Right to Housing Project at the Public Justice Center right here in Baltimore. Matt, thank you so much for this interview, for your work, and thank you for your continued push for us to get this right. Thank you for having me. 
You're listening to Future City here on WYPR 88.1 FM. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, you'll hear from two Baltimore housing activists about the struggles many immigrants are facing in accessing affordable housing during the coronavirus crisis. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, the monthly show where we explore some of the most pressing issues in Baltimore City and where we shift the question from what's wrong to what's next. On this month's show, we're talking about COVID-19 and the affordable housing crisis. And now we're joined by two remarkable activists to talk about how the coronavirus and the economic downturn is affecting renters here in Baltimore and particularly our important immigrant population. Gabriela Roque is Center Maryland lead organizer for CASA and Jose Munoz is a community leader for CASA in Action. Gabriela and Jose, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here too. Well, thank you both. Um, and, and Jose, if it's okay, I wanna start with you. Uh, can you tell us how COVID-19 has affected your life personally since the shutdown started in March and what you have seen in the work and the communities that you're doing your work in. It's been crazy because at the end of March, I got a letter from my boss saying that I was laid off. It was really crazy because I'm an immigrant, came from Honduras. I don't have any uh, social security numbers, so I started uh, working with IT number. And then I got this surprise that I'm being doing taxes. I find out that I didn't be able to apply for employment, even for the, any stimulus check. So I got that surprise. Even I'm being paying taxes using an IT number, but this system is not helping me through these all years that I've been working in this country. So it has been really hard for me. And also for the community, because I've been seeing the community uh, struggling in these uh, trying times. So, yes, it's been really hard for me. Thanks CASA and CASA in Action that they've been able to help me and help other community members or even the whole community by giving us kind of like a gift cards. And then this being kind of like a, a little stimulus for us. But yes, it's been really crazy. You know, I'm trying to be surviving in this pandemic. So, so Jose, I, I, I want to press on this because I think it's really important that our listeners understand what happened. You were working, you were a taxpayer, but yes. when the CARES Act and all these other things that came out that provided things like cash assistance and emergency supports, you were intentionally left out of that, despite the fact that you were working, despite the fact that you're a taxpayer? Yes, uh, this has been really crazy for me and I guess for all the community because nobody understand that why the society work in this way, what the system work in this way, you know? And then it's been crazy uh, trying to understand why we cannot be able to apply for all this kind of help. And, and, and your story is not alone. We're talking about millions of people who fell into that category because of everything from 
uh, uh, status, to if you're part of a, a mixed status household, to if you were a student, to if you were working but not hitting the income tax filing threshold. So uh, there was a uh, there was an intentional miserliness of of the way that the that the act was was laid out. And, and let me just come back to one more question with you, Jose, where, you know, you've been protesting over the state's response to COVID-19, including a, a cancel the rent demonstration inside Annapolis. How do you want the Maryland state government to respond to the COVID-19 housing crisis? I would like them understand this is a humanitarian um, thing is happening. It's not because you have any uh, social security number or you have a kind of like a status in this country, but also they need to think about, we are human, you know, we need this kind of help. So I would like to add this, I went to Annapolis and there was an amazing, amazing group of CASA and CASA in Action that we were protesting from of the Larry Hogan house saying, we need to have this rent cancellation because we, we don't have this kind of help from the government. So yes, I will be working and doing this again and again, and I would like to ask them what they can do for us. You know, Gabriella, I, I would like to, to to bring you into the conversation because you know, I mean, you you advocate for you advocate for immigrants in Baltimore and the state of Maryland, mostly but not exclusively uh, Latin American immigrants. How common are stories like Jose's right now in Baltimore? I think the majority of our members have shared the same experience as Jose Munoz. Once they started working with their tax ID, they've been paying taxes. Some of our members have been here 10, 20 years. Some of them are also TPS holders who, as you mentioned, have mixed status. So maybe they were married to someone who's undocumented, but they themselves have uh, documentation. And because of that, they they didn't receive the stimulus check either. So I would say the grand majority of these immigrants of the commu- of the Latino community did not receive a stimulus check and did not receive any um, financial assistance from, from the federal government, from the CARES Act. And in response to this, CASA, we actually started a solidarity fund and we raised over $1 million for our members so that they could receive some type of financial assistance. And of course, this isn't... Unfortunately, we weren't able to give everyone $1,200, but we were able to give people $250 to $500 or more, depending on the severity of their case. But these issues have just been compounded because not only did people, you know, are falling behind with their rent, if they fall behind, they they also don't have health insurance. So if they get sick, if they have to go to the hospital during COVID, if they get admitted, all of these medical bills are also going to add up to these uh, add up for our community members. So the stimulus check is just one part of this. There's also so many other financial burdens that the community right now is facing. And um, another reason that they haven't been able to access some of these services are because of the, um, the information is usually in English or the information is usually online. So if you have low literacy skills, no English skills or no computer literacy, it's almost impossible for you to find out about these information, these resources, and apply. So even though um, here in Baltimore City, the local politicians have been tr- trying to be more inclusive about the different services and relief they provide related to COVID, many of our members still have struggled to access these services. 
And it can take months for people to receive any type of financial assistance, whether it be for their BGE bill or for rental assistance. Um, we had many members who applied to revert the first program of rental assistance that the city gave back in, in July. And we have a very few members who actually received that fund afterwards. I mean, you you do you did such a brilliant job right there of also illustrating that there are a multitude of ways that our communities and our immigrant communities have been touched by the housing uncertainty that has brought about COVID and also the barriers. Uh, you know, you think about things like access to Wi-Fi, access to, to technology, the, the, the language barrier. You know, you know, were these things that people had anticipated prior to COVID-19 that had been advocated for, that we're pushing for, that we needed to increase, you know, measures of access? Or, or, or do you feel that we were still caught pretty flat-footed once everything happened? I think we have struggled to meet the needs of this community and to bring them into the different social services that exist. You know, the lack of having Wi-Fi or the lack of having internet is still very real for a lot of our families. Even one month into school being started, we have many uh, families in our community whose students, whose children don't have school laptops or they don't have reliable internet. So accessing the different programs has been a struggle. And I know that the city is doing the best it can, but many of our communities have been left out for months. And we are almost six months, seven months into this pandemic, and some people haven't received any financial assistance. I, I, I feel like part of it is it's, uh, it's, it's understanding for people, for people to fully understand the, the depth of the struggle and the extent of how many people we're talking about. This is not a small amount of, of, of people, nor are these small issues that people are wrestling with. I mean, how do you think that Baltimore County's approach differs to COVID-19 and, and, and housing in compared to Baltimore cities? I would say Baltimore County is far behind Baltimore City in terms of acknowledging and appreciating the Latino immigrant community that exists in Baltimore County. We have large numbers who live in the Northwest and also the Southeast part of the county. And many of them have, I feel that it's, it's a shame that we see so many of these people in the food distributions, but there isn't any follow-up to connect them to other services or to other support that they may need. Um, for example, none of the information is really given online. Here in Baltimore City, they have an Office of Immigrants, uh, Immigration Affairs. So the office goes by MIMA, and they have been able to provide information on people. They give information digitally. They give information on YouTube. They do videos. They have their own Facebook page. I think in Anne Arundel County, if I can also draw from another part of Central Maryland, they have text messages that people can sign up for in Spanish so they can receive these notifications through text in Spanish. So I think in terms of like outreach to the Latino community or to the immigrant community, it's very scant in the county, in Baltimore County, compared to other parts of Central Maryland. Um, and I, I would also like to talk a little bit about um, the housing situation that many immigrant Latino families were in before the pandemic. In Baltimore City, we don't really have a lot of huge apartment complexes. We have a lot of scenarios where there are individual private landlords. And when we started this program, when the Baltimore City started their financial assistance program for, for rent relief, one of the things that they required was that the landlord have a registered license. 
to, to rent the property. And when we were helping our members, we found out that many of these people, private landlords that they were renting from, either didn't have a license or they didn't want to cooperate because they didn't want to bring their license up to date. Many people who are undocumented have fears about um, applying or they're just unable to apply to legitimate places to rent. And so they're often exploited. So when the governor did his uh, moratorium on evictions, many of the people, many of our community members, we tried to let them know about the, this moratorium on evictions, but there are still illegal evictions happening because these people aren't officially landlords. So if they get tired of someone, if they decide they no longer, if we've had cases where members of the community have gotten sick and their landlord didn't want them to come back, they were only renting them a room and they were worried about catching it themselves. And so that person had to find somewhere else to live. So we have many people in the immigrant Latino community in Baltimore City who are kind of in these informal housing situations. They're renting a basement, they're renting a room, they don't have a contract. The person there who's renting to them doesn't have a license. And so even if there are programs that exist for them, they might not qualify because they have this kind of illegitimate um, housing situation going on. So it's really difficult to find a way to protect them because technically none of those documentations are there. And we try to teach the community about why it's important to have, you know, proper documentation, even if you could just, you know, keep copies of the receipts that you're paying someone for rent. Um, but it becomes an obstacle because, for example, if you pay, you earn all of your money in cash and you pay your landlord in cash, you know, they may not write a receipt for you. They might just take your money and that's it. So there's a lot of under the table, a lot of informal agreements that when people, you know, their rights are being violated, we have a hard time legally um, backing them up. So they're just people who, you know, are marginalized <laughs> in many sense because of their status and because of that they can't apply for many programs or they don't have these legitimate situations where they could be eligible for different programs that exist as well. I've been speaking with Gabriela Roque, who is Central Maryland lead organizer for CASA, and Jose Munoz, a community leader for CASA in Action. Both of you, your actions and your leadership have been absolutely invaluable during this time and before. And, uh, and we're incredibly grateful for not just your time today, but for your work every single day. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR 88.1 FM. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away, because when we come back, we'll zoom out, take a look at the national scene, and learn about both the federal response and some innovative ways People are both defending already existing affordable housing and also creating new affordable housing around the country. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR 88.1 FM. On this month's show, we're talking about COVID-19 and the affordable housing crisis. And joining us now to talk about both the federal response and also some innovative ways people are both defending, existing, and creating new affordable housing around the country is Kristen Capps. Kristen is a writer for City Lab based in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on housing, architecture, and the built environment. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us here on Future City. Thank you for having me. 
So first, I just want to start with the basics of, of how has COVID-19 and how has this crisis affected low-income renters in the United States? The biggest way is it's taken away their money. It's taken, um, it's taken jobs, uh, millions of jobs around the country. It's, it's taken hours. And for people who were um, just barely hanging on for this has been a catastrophe. We have seen, you know, through the pandemic, a lot of low-income renters kind of lurch from, you know, one precipice to another. Like, uh, you know, the aid and assistance has been late in coming. It's been reactive, uh, not proactive. And now it's not coming at all. So you're talking about a lot of households who just are out of money. And, and we know that that uh, we had even before COVID-19 a situation where the lion's share of the money that people had coming in in the first place were going towards things like rent. And so when you have this shutoff or this cutoff or this restriction on even flow and, and, and steady capital that's coming in, you know that one of the first things that's going to get hit is the place where people were putting a lion's share of their income which was going into basic elements of housing. Yeah, I mean, there's a saying uh, that the rent eats first. And what you know that means is that when um, people are strapped for cash, they uh, will often sacrifice other things, um, medical care, um, food. Uh, and it's often emergencies that can put people over the edge, put them in position where they lose their housing, where they face eviction. And so this pandemic is like one, one um, simultaneous emergency for everyone. Um, it has, you know, triggered fears that there's going to be an avalanche of evictions. And so far, policymakers at the state and federal and even local level have managed to stave it off through a few, through a kind of patchwork of policy solutions. Um, and emergency aid, but it's still all due. All of the overdue rent um, is, is still due, and there is currently not a plan in place for when that moment arrives. Yeah, and we and we know that this crisis also goes beyond renters as well. It's it's even for uh, you know for others uh, who are who are buyers and owners as well. So I mean, so so what about the larger housing market um, beyond renters? How what have we seen and what trends have we seen in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on, on, on those families as well? Well, you know, it's, it's been a little bit hard to see when you look at, say, the Census Bureau's weekly household survey, you get uh, a tremendous amount of reporting saying that there's um, that people are having difficulty paying their rents. People are having difficulty paying their mortgages as much as a third of people at a time in these weekly surveys. But at the same time, you know, large apartment groups, a lot of mortgage uh, banks don't really see those problems yet at that same rate. So I think that we have a situation in which we have a great deal of anxiety in the housing market, but people are managing so far, for the most part, to keep up with their rents and mortgages. At the same time, that could still be a sign of distress. Think about the kinds of maintenance that homeowners 
are putting off. Think about the um, kinds of maintenance that landlords are putting off. Um, think about the way that people are, you know, spending deeper into credit card debt, uh, spending down savings, um, turning to loans to family and friends to pay these bills. So some the bills are are being paid so far, but that's still a a lot of economic harm that's happening. And, and and it seems like also there's the the approach in terms of how uh, federal and state support has been responding to the housing needs of individuals, depending on status, renters, owners, et cetera, has also been different and varied um, and disparate. So can you give us an overview of how the federal government has been responding to the urgent housing needs for people who have been affected by the COVID-19 crisis? Well, the, the CARES Act was like a life wrap for the country. Um, you know, not only did it authorize uh, a federal eviction moratorium, um, not only did it authorize the $600 a week boost in unemployment benefits, which really, um, you know, it was just an immense boost to the entire safety net and really helped people through this crisis for a time. You know, it also put billions of dollars into emergency rental assistance programs, for example. Um, you know, more than 300 of these emergency rent aid programs across the country are working now, and something like 60% of them are drawing their financing or their funding through the CARES Act. But that money is dwindling. The CARES Act was a long time ago. That was May. Uh, a lot of its provisions expired in July. Now yeah. it's October. We're not it seems unlikely that we're getting any more aid before the election. Then we're not getting it after that until possibly January, late in winter. Um, and, and people need the assistance now. Yeah. And we also realize that there is a difference between even when something is passed and when the dollars come, when the dollars actually hit people's hands. And I think we saw that in, in the CARES Act. But, you know, but, as, but at, at the at the beginning of October, the House passed a, a you know, a two point two trillion dollar uh, COVID-19 relief package that does include quite a few measures around housing. The effort to pass that new stimulus, though, as you have mentioned, has not only stalled, but we've now received full indication that there really is no plan that's going to come out, at least for the next couple of weeks, uh, as if people have not been struggling and suffering even well prior to all this. What is actually in that House bill that relates to housing? And what are the main points of disagreement that we've seen on those fronts that we've seen between House Democrats and House Republicans? Well, at the I mean, at the last stage in which negotiations between House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin were really active, um, you know, the, the HEROES Act had a, a great deal of aid for struggling renters, for struggling homeowners. For people who are struggling, um, it is smaller. The, the the bill that they were talking about, the two point two trillion bill, um, is is somewhat smaller than the one that they passed in May. However, that contains the new bill contains a complete eviction moratorium. It is not porous like the one that currently exists from the the one ordered by the CDC, but it means that landlords cannot file an eviction for a full calendar year. So that just puts it at rest. Those landlords themselves cannot face foreclosure for the non-payment of rent, for the rent that they're not receiving. On the other end, it has somewhere between 50 and $80 billion in aid for renters who are behind, for homeowners who are behind. 
basically the idea is to freeze the rent to make people whole and to get them through the remainder of this crisis for what we hope is the full duration of this crisis. Um, until that passes, though, I'm not sure what else struggling renters can can really do. You can't squeeze a stone um, much harder. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think one thing that we we had seen too, and and you know, again, you you've been you've been uh, right on top of this for a very long time, well prior to COVID nineteen. It is on this idea of how exactly to make sure that there is both the inventory question and the accessibility question for affordable housing. And you know, you look at you look at how Baltimore differs from a lot of other places where you know in Baltimore you're still talking about a city that used to be close to a million people. Now it's a little less than six hundred thousand people. Um, there is there is uh, there is is housing. Much of it dilapidated. People cannot actually live inside of you know in, inside of these properties. But it's a different housing conversation that you'd have in certain other cities like San Francisco or New York or things along those lines. But you touched on these various elements before, you know, before you, you wrote uh, affordable housing is hard, hard to find because it's hard to build. What exactly did you mean by that? And, and, and why, in your opinion, is that? Well, it's it's grown more expensive over time to build, you know, for a variety of reasons, a lot of which are beyond me. Our economy is increasingly centered on three or four superstar cities. And in those places, um, the, you know, in the homeowners who are already there have really successfully put a lock on building um, new construction. You know, they've made it really difficult to build apartment buildings um, in kind of the center core desirable areas, places where there are good schools, great parks, libraries, all of the amenities you want. That's one part of our affordable crisis, and it stems back decades. It uh, owes to exclusionary zoning that have helped prop up segregation in our cities. There is another affordable housing crisis, and it's one that you see more in Baltimore and a lot of uh, uh, legacy industrial cities, and it's that, that those homes have lost their value. Um, and that those communities suffer from um, vacancy. And um, it's a very, it's a similarly difficult and similarly entrenched um, problem to restore value in those communities to, you know, actually build or rebuild those homes and bring amenities and bring people back into those places. So the two kinds of affordability crises are really far apart. But they're related. They're related in the sense that they're about where people want to live and where jobs are. And part of solving these crises is going to be is going to be bringing balance to those things, bringing some jobs, bringing community back into the places that have lost it, and building homes in those places that have everything. And so, when you think about uh, bringing those things back bringing those uh the the locations back and the infrastructure back the other question then gets brought up and you know and my, my final question is is really about who's doing it and you know you have a whole variety of different types of developers that yeah. are in this game playing in this space uh for a collection of different reasons motivations etc but what role can nonprofit developers 
play in increasing affordable housing and increasing the affordable housing stock inside this country, particularly thinking about this rebuild of how we need to think about in the post-COVID-19 world? Well, I think that's a really great point. I mean, I think that those nonprofit developers have a crucial role to play because they are working in the communities. They are working um, with the communities. It's uh, They operate in a different, very different way from the kind of incentive-based structures like you know, opportunity zones that try to bring in um, big capital into distressed communities. Instead, nonprofit developers, um, land banks, um, and other affordable housing developers, they're already there. So they, I think, have or can have the kind of insight, the kind of participation and consent of the community that a lot of our other capital-driven redevelopment schemes lack. And that's going to be important to make sure that the people who are in those communities get to stay in those communities and aren't displaced once there is um, some money and once there is some attention coming into um, into those places. I've been speaking with Kristen Caps. Kristen is a writer for City Lab based in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on housing, architecture, and the built environment. Kristen, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on Future City. Thank you for having me. Before we go, I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. COVID-19 has not only exacerbated the depths of disparity in our communities and recessed a safety net for our society's most vulnerable, it has exposed the inequity that was there before. Communities were already spending over half of every dollar made on housing prior to COVID-19. And since then, we have watched the number of unemployed and underemployed in our community skyrocket. And now, 30 to 40 million renters are at risk of losing their housing. And we know that black and brown working communities have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and the housing crisis. In a recent op-ed for the Baltimore Sun, Sharice Liu and Tisha Guthrie wrote, Eviction has always been a threat to public health. The cocktail of housing insecurity and high infection rates among minority communities may prove to be lethal. The depths of uncertainty in our life are real and they are stark. How will our kids be educated? When will my job return? When will we have a vaccine for this treacherous virus? Imagine if we could systematically identify things that we know should have been resolved even prior to the pandemic. Imagine a place in space where we viewed housing as a human right. Imagine a place in space where we could think through elements like right to counsel and moratoriums on evictions until the pandemic is cleared like other states have done. Imagine if we could be creative about housing inventory and turn this not only into a housing initiative, but something that could actually and rightfully stimulate our economy in a powerful way. Imagine if the hopes for our future city include making sure all residents had safe, healthy housing guaranteed as a right and not a privilege. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City 
under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.